0: Welcome to statewide reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead, we'll look at the issue of pipeline projects. They've been touted as a way to help with greenhouse gases by transporting CO2 for underground storage. But there is a growing pushback from many landowners. We'll hear about some common mistakes and challenges for Chicago migrants seeking work permits. Valentine's Day is coming up. There's been a rise in romance scams. We'll have some tips to avoid being taken. We'll profile a Republican primary for Congress in Illinois featuring two conservatives, the incumbent Mike Boss and challenger Darren Bailey. We'll also talk with a Lincoln historian and author about Lincoln and race. And juvenile detention centers have come under more scrutiny. We'll learn about problems at two of them in northern Illinois. Those stories and more ahead on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. To meet the country's energy goals, the U.S. must push away from industries and energy sources that produce a lot of carbon dioxide, Lawmakers have approved plans to do that by giving the go-ahead for pipelines that sequester CO2 or distribute hydrogen power. Numerous pipeline proposals crisscross the Midwest. As Eric Schmidt reports, past experiences, along with a lack of clear regulation, has left farmers and landowners resistant to more projects. On a
1: balmy day last October, Kenny Davis walked through a recently harvested soybean field on his property in southern Illinois. He points out what looks like a railroad tie sticking out of the ground.
2: See that right there? That's a big chunk of wood and I think it's going to be a mat. Yeah, that's a mat.
1: Davis says it's leftover debris from years earlier when the natural gas company Spire built a new pipeline through the middle of his property. They used wooden platforms to support the heavy machinery that installed the pipeline, and he says they left parts of it in his field.
3: See how big a chunk that is? If that would have
1: went through their combine, they'd have done some damage. Davis isn't the only one with damage along the 65-mile route. Further south, Ray Sinclair says the pipeline construction altered the slope of his soybean fields, causing water to pool. This green spot over here is a wet spot that we were not able to plant this spring. Is that wet? It had frogs in it. Sinclair says others have lost productivity too, with some farmers along the route saying their yields have been cut in half. The Illinois Attorney General is suing the company for the damages. Spire disputes the claims. As frustrated as Davis and Sinclair are with Spire, they say government regulators failed to hold the company accountable.
3: The rules and all the regulations are all there, but that's just just for looks.
1: Rules like returning the land to the way it was. The feds have said natural gas is a stopgap for the clean energy transition, but Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth says the damage is a wake-up call.
4: The Spire situation has proven how much we need to update pipeline rules from regulators. Somebody has to be watching and checking up on what these companies are doing.
1: And now, more pipelines are coming to carry CO2 for sequestration and hydrogen as a replacement for natural gas. Many are getting huge tax breaks from the Inflation Reduction Act. Tara Rigetti is a law professor at the University of Wyoming who focuses on carbon sequestration.
5: There has been a collective choice to go down this path. Pretty much all of the modeling shows that carbon removal to some extent is going to be necessary.
1: She says big emitters like ethanol facilities, chemical and power plants need pipelines to connect to places where captured CO2 can be stored. You can't pump the gas underground just anywhere. It takes a certain type of geology. The best places are along the Texas Louisiana Gulf Coast, Midwest, and Great Plains, often not right next to large polluters. Rigetti says that means the current 5,000 miles of CO2 pipeline could grow tenfold.
5: Really long. Pipeline networks that sort of spider web connecting all sorts of sources to different sinks.
1: She says that initially means construction in mostly rural areas, but these projects have been a hard sell. Last year, Navigator CO2 scrapped its plan for 1,300 miles of CO2 pipeline across the Midwest. And operations of Summit Carbon Solutions' 2,000-mile network have been delayed by years after North and South Dakota rejected the company's permit requests. Jared Bosley is a fourth-generation farmer and rancher in northern South Dakota who has fought the pipelines.
6: I mean, we're filling rooms with
0: people, and the consensus is just no. We don't want it. Proponents say
1: the CO2 pipeline projects would extend the life of the ethanol industry. But Bosley says it won't directly benefit farmers, and they shouldn't have to give up their land.
0: You get absolutely nothing from this CO2 thing.
1: Rigetti, the law professor, says that's understandable,
5: especially for a new technology. Why should they be bearing those risks personally if they don't have any you know, individual benefit from it or use of it as well?
1: She says communities where this infrastructure passes through should benefit from it, like getting a share of the billions of dollars these projects stand to generate. In St. Louis, I'm Eric Schmidt.
0: When kids are charged with a crime, while presumed innocent, they're sometimes detained at county juvenile detention centers while they wait for the case to be resolved. The centers are mandated to provide education. Peter Medlin reports on some northern Illinois centers labeled non-compliant by the state in education and discipline.
4: Every day. There are between 400 and 500 youth in county detention centers in Illinois. At the Winnebago County Juvenile Detention Center, youth reported that staff would shut off water access in a cell for extended periods as a precaution to disruptive behavior. Shutting off water in one room also affected the ones next to them so a neighbor's behavior could limit others' water access too. Youth were sometimes confined in their cell for multiple days when state regulations limit confinement to a max of four hours. One kid only attended school at the center twice in the month of May because of behavioral reasons. That's according to the most recent Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice Inspection Report. These are a few reasons that the Winnebago County Juvenile Detention Center was classified as non-compliant in the areas of education, discipline, and mental health services in the 2023 Inspection Report. It's a 48-bed facility and one of 15 county-run juvenile detention centers in Illinois. The youth are typically between 15 and 17 years old, and the average length of stay is about a month. Debbie Jarvis is the director of court services for the 17th Judicial Circuit Court, which covers Boone and Winnebago counties. Her role encompasses several divisions, including the detention center.
5: We have a fair amount of kids who may be detained and then at the time of their detention hearing, they are released. So that could be within two days. But then we have kids who are in our detention facility for a very long period of time who might be pending on adult charges. Some of those kids could be in our detention facility for over a year.
4: With education, they follow a normal schedule five days a week with at least five hours of instruction a day. They have three teachers and a full-time aide who are employees of Rockford Public Schools. But kids at the center are coming from many school districts across Winnebago and Boone counties. And with so many kids coming in and out of classes all the time, it makes curriculum complicated. And Jarvis says since this fall, they've been collaborating a lot more with Rockford Public Schools administrators to improve their education services. And she says they're also trying to completely change their approach to discipline to limit long-term confinement, which could mean missing classes on the day of the Department of Juvenile Justice audit. Nine students were marked absent because of behavior.
5: What we have developed with the school district is that we have those kids not in the classroom, but working on educational material outside of the classroom. So the teachers are developing packets and what we're working toward with the school district is making sure that those packets are as meaningful as they can be. Jarvis
4: says they also had some inconsistencies with marking some students as absent who weren't. The Winnebago County Center also received funding to hire three full-time therapists as of December. Jarvis says they're now leaning on mental health services instead of long-term confinement. The LaSalle County Juvenile Detention Center is a much smaller facility. It only has 16 beds, and that facility has been deemed non-compliant with discipline and education for the past two years. The 2023 Illinois Department of Juvenile Justice Inspection Audit notes several cases of 24-hour confinement. And since the facility requires youth to sleep in just shorts and t-shirts, many youth reported feeling cold at night. The center has one full-time teacher, and they have an endorsement to teach kindergarten through ninth grade. So because youth are typically older than that, most services they provide are outside of that endorsement, and the state recommends they hire someone with the correct endorsement. The audit also reports no clear services provided to students with individualized education plans, or IEPs, and little collaboration with Mendota High School, where youth are enrolled while at the center. Students have classes, write story reports based on the news, have physical education, and use Edgenuity, which is an online learning platform for credit recovery if students are behind. Chuck Goodwin is the director of court services for the 13th Judicial Circuit, covering LaSalle, Grundy, and Bureau counties. He says they're also trying to step up mental health support, including bringing in a caseworker during the school day.
0: And what we're working towards is the last hour for two of those days when we normally have structure hour, he would be running a a cognitive behavior program.
4: He says the center is working hard to resolve their special education issue, and they're trying to hire a paraprofessional educator but are having issues filling the position. Starting in 2025, youth housed at county detention centers in Illinois will have another layer of oversight. A recent state law extended the jurisdiction of the Office of the Independent Juvenile Ombudsman to cover county detention centers. Previously, it had just covered juvenile prisons. Jennifer Voland-Katz is the executive director of the John Howard Association, a prison watchdog group that advocated for the legislation.
2: It is really about giving youth someplace to go to access their rights so that they can go outside of the department that's holding them in custody to seek recourse or report abuse, neglect, or any, anything else.
4: The office is also built to help families and loved ones of detained youth find information. Volancat says that no matter how long someone is detained, whether hours, months, or longer, they should have a place to be heard and have their rights respected. I'm Peter Medlin.
0: Progressive lawmakers and activists are trying to make Illinois the eighth state to eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. We have more from Alex Stegman.
6: Lawmakers expect to introduce a measure that requires employers to pay tipped employees the full minimum wage. Right now, tipped workers make $8.40 an hour. State Senator Lakeisha Collins says this would help some of the state's most vulnerable people.
1: This industry is dominated by women. And if we want to truly invest in women... And we are truly for women then you gotta pay them
4: what the hell you owe them
6: the illinois restaurant association is opposed saying those who rely on tips end up averaging 28 dollars an hour and this idea would force business owners to lay people off and raise costs chicago passed its own ordinance last year that phases out the tip minimum wage by 2028. i'm alex Dagman. thousands of migrants living
0: in chicago are trying to figure out where to get help with their pending immigration cases or work permit applications some migrants living in city shelters are getting help from government officials and local agencies. So far, about 1,000 people have received work permits through those efforts. But many more living outside shelters are trying to figure out how and where to seek help. Adriana Cardona-McGiegett of WBEZ
7: talked with Mary Dixon.
5: What are some of the challenges that migrants have to overcome to get work permits?
7: Yeah, so navigating the immigration system is extremely difficult and detailed. You got to have your documents in order showing not only your identity and other personal information, but proof that what you say in your application is true. Sometimes that's hard to gather, especially for migrants who have been moving from place to place in recent months. Not speaking English and transportation are also challenges, especially for migrants outside of shelters looking for help on their own. Many free or low-cost immigration services are at capacity right now, too. And migrants looking for private attorneys are at risk of being exposed to scams. I spoke with Catherine Norquist. She's the Immigration Legal Services Director at World Relief Chicagoland. And this is what she has to say.
8: If someone is trying to
6: charge you a ton of money, especially right up front, that can be a sign. And yes, people making promises that seem grandiose. I'll get you your citizenship. There's no way to jump from humanitarian parole to citizenship.
7: She says you have to have a path to a green card first, and that path can be long and complicated, depending on your immigration case. Of the about
5: 14,000 migrants currently housed in shelters, how many have actually acquired work permits through the city's efforts?
7: Only about 1,000, which is lower than the original estimates by city officials. Back in November, their goal was to assist 11,000 people in shelters with TPS and work permits by February of this year. But the number of people who are actually eligible is way lower than they previously anticipated.
5: Who qualifies for a work permit?
7: There are two ways in which uh, many immigrants from Venezuela and a few other countries qualify. One is CPS or Temporary Protected Status, a program that protects people from deportation while allowing them to legally work in the United States. Many migrants can also apply for work permits if they have a humanitarian parole. And that's a program for migrants escaping dictatorships and economic collapse.
5: How are the migrants in Chicago getting this help?
7: Migrants staying in any of the city shelters who qualify for work permits are being bused to a location in downtown Chicago where multiple agencies are holding workshops to help people with their applications. Norquist, with a World Relief Chicagoland, has been at these workshops
8: they screen the folks. Um,
6: they also need to see if their court date is in the system. Then they're passed on to someone else who is trained to, to fill out the TPS forms and the work permit
2: form.
7: She says federal immigration agents are also there to assist people in this process. They fingerprint applicants and sometimes issue decisions. Migrants living outside of shelters are advised to look for immigration accredited organizations in their communities.
5: And what do these people living outside the shelters need to keep in mind when they're looking for immigration services?
7: Yeah, well, first, people should find accredited, free or low cost organizations offering immigration services. If people want to hire a private attorney, Norquist says it's okay to ask for proof of credentials. One way to check if a person is an immigration attorney is by looking up their name on the American Immigration Lawyers Association website.
5: Adriana, just a very basic question. Why is the issue of getting a work permit so important for these asylum seekers?
7: Yeah, well, um, many migrants want to be on their feet. They want to be financially stable. They want to pay for their own rent, their own food, basic necessities, and That's why many of them uh, cross so many countries to get here.
5: Adriana cardona Magigad covers immigration for WBEZ. Thank
7: you, Adriana. Thank you, Mary.
0: Abraham Lincoln and race. The author of a book will join us next here on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. As we recognize Abraham Lincoln's birthday on Monday, we talk with a Lincoln scholar. Historian Michael Burlingame has written a book about Abraham Lincoln, this one examining what shaped Lincoln's views on race. Randy Eccles spoke with him last year. The book is called The Black
3: Man's President. The title comes from a eulogy that Frederick Douglass delivered six weeks after Lincoln's assassination. It's a remarkable document, and it's not very well known. It's not included in the anthologies of Douglass' speeches that were published at Yale in in five really big volumes back in the the 90s, 80s and 90s, and it's not in the the four-volume edition that Philip Foner did. It's very hard to find it, although it's a wonderful piece. He says that Abraham Lincoln was emphatically the Black man's president, the first to rise above the prejudice of his time and his country by inviting me, Frederick Douglass, to consult with him at the White House. He was saying, I am the president of the black man as well as the white man, and I mean to honor his rights as a man and a citizen. This is a particularly striking eulogy because it contrasts very dramatically with a speech that's much, much, much better known. And that's a speech that Douglass gave in 1876 at the dedication of the Emancipation Memorial, which featured a rising slave and and Lincoln holding the Emancipation Proclamation that was dedicated in Washington. It was before an audience that included a large number of Black people, as well as the president, ranking members of Congress, justices of the Supreme Court, members of the cabinet. In that speech, Abraham Lincoln was described by Frederick Douglass as preeminently the white man's president, and we Black folk were only his stepchildren. And I can remember when I discovered this speech in the Frederick Douglass papers, when I was doing research long, long time ago at the Library of Congress, there was a folder that said Lincoln, so I thought, okay. And there was this speech in Frederick Douglass' handwriting in which this remarkable, sharply different version of his interpretation of Lincoln, and I, I was astounded. It's quite a contradiction. It's something of a mystery why he would change his mind so dramatically. In that 1876 speech, he says Lincoln had the prejudices of the typical white man of his time. And in 1868, he said he's the first president to rise above the prejudice of his time in his country. I think happened is this. Um, uh, Now, David Blight, who just wrote the most scholarly biography of Frederick Douglass appeared a year or two ago, said that whenever Douglass was talking in later years about Lincoln, it was in a political context and had to be read that way. The politics of 1876 were pretty grim for Black people. That is to say that the Reconstruction effort that had gotten launched by Lincoln during the war, advanced by him as the war ended, with his call for Black voting rights. After that, Congress passes the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act and the Enforcement acts a whole raft of legislation. And for a while, those laws were enforced. Starting in the mid 1870s, the public interest in racial justice for for the freed slaves waned. It was in part because a tremendous depression began in 1873, and, and people's attention was focused more on matters of economic recovery than they were on racial justice for Black people in the South. The subtext of Douglas's speech was this in 1876. You mustn't let Reconstruction go down the drain. And he, he's, he, and he specifically addresses this to the white portion of his crowd, namely the power elite. Don't let Reconstruction go down the drain. It was begun by your man, the guy who cares about the white race. And he, he started this ball in motion. He's the one who called for Black voting rights and got assassinated for doing so, by the way. And he did that not because he's some bleeding heart, sentimental do-gooder, but because he's a tough-minded champion of the interests of the white race. And he realized that the white race would benefit if the Black race enjoyed first-class citizenship. So don't let this Reconstruction effort go down the drain. But it did. That accounts for the difference between the two speeches.
9: The book, to some extent, is not just a, a Lincoln book. Douglas makes quite a few appearances
3: in your book. He does indeed, because the, the focus of the book is to test the notion that Lincoln was a racist by looking at his interaction with Black people, not his speeches and letters and policies and appointments and, and that sort of thing, which is pretty familiar. But how did he interact with Black people in Springfield? Most previous historians have said, oh, well, Lincoln didn't really know any accomplished, proud, self-respecting Black people until he got to Washington. He ran and met Frederick Douglass and and many other very eminent Black folks. The people in Springfield, the Black people, there were very few of them, and they they weren't very self-respecting and proud and assertive and all that sort of thing. Richard Hart, attorney here in Springfield, was a great scholar in addition to being a fine attorney. He did a lot of work on the history of Black people in Springfield during the Lincoln era. He's a very thorough and indefatigable scholar, and he's dug up a lot of really important pieces of information. For example, that the Lincoln neighborhood was a racially and ethnically diverse neighborhood, that he had black neighbors just just doors away down the street, Jameson Jenkins, who were proud people. Jameson Jenkins was an underground railroad conductor, Lincoln's bootmaker, William K. Donegan was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. His barber, who was his good personal friend, not just, not just a client and businessman, but a very successful businessman as well as buyer, was a very close friend of Lincoln. Lincoln used to spend a lot of time there chatting with him. Florville was a remarkable guy. He was a very successful businessman, great philanthropist. He's played several musical instruments, remarkable guy. We know about the quality of the relationship between Florville and the president because Florville writes Lincoln a long letter in 1863 after Lincoln's son Willie has died, expressing his condolences and, and talking about Willie and what a remarkable boy he was and how advanced he was for his years. He talks about t- his relationship with Lincoln. He gives reports saying that Willie's dog, that is now Tad's dog, is being well taken care of. By the way, your home, the, the people subletting your home are taking good care of it because they don't have children to ruin it. <laughs> right? it's, it's a wonderful letter and the whole tone is warm and it's not the client of patron relationship. It's a friend relationship. He writes to Lincoln because Lincoln had sent him greetings, verbal greetings, through a couple of friends whom we saw in Washington and said, listen, when you're back in Springfield, be sure to give my best wishes to William Florville, Billy the Barber. When Lincoln goes to Washington, he's not a blank slate when it comes to imagining Black people as, as proud, self-respecting, assertive, worthy people whose citizenship rights should be respected. He couldn't champion them as citizenship rights in Illinois at the time because Illinois was the most negrophobic state in the, in the nation. If Lincoln was going to have a chance at unseating Stephen A. Douglas, he had to pay lip service to the prevailing code of of second class citizenship for Blacks. But in his personal relationships and in his heart of hearts, uh, I'm convinced he was a racial egalitarian just instinctively. I dedicate the book to Dick Hart because he really was the pioneer. He helped inspire me to to do this book. When you
9: look at the environment now, post George Floyd, and with heightened sensitivity, that we have not completed the, the efforts that Lincoln advanced so much in his time. How would you compare our times to the times there? Are we overly sensitive to the idea of slavery then? Was it a a, a huge issue, or was it something that some people paid attention to?
3: It has been said that uh, during the Civil War, that the voting population, which of course is all white, was 90%, at least in the North, 90% anti-slavery, and 70, uh, 75% anti-slavery and 90% anti-Black, which <laughs> seems paradoxical to us, that people who regard Blacks black as inferior were nonetheless opposed to slavery, but that's the way it was in those days. For people like Lincoln, who believed that the, there were two evils, that is, slavery was an evil and the second-class citizenship to which free Blacks was, uh, were consigned were both evils. The question was, could you attack them both simultaneously? Well, you could if you were in New Hampshire or Vermont or Massachusetts, but you couldn't in Illinois, not if you hoped to get elected and Lincoln hoped to get elected in 1858 when he challenged Stephen A. Douglas, not just to gratify his own vanity and political ambition, but because he regarded Stephen A. Douglas as the greatest threat to the anti-slavery movement in the country. That Douglas was trying to convince people not to care about slavery, that slavery should be considered a local issue, a local option issue. It's like whether you should serve beer or not. Didn't have any moral overtones. And like said, no, 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 no. That that completely misunderstands the nature of this issue. He believed that if Douglas became president, he would help anesthetize the conscience of the country. Eventually, then the Supreme Court would rule that no state could forbid slaveholders from bringing. They're slaves with him and settling in the state. And the, and the nation would become all slave. And that's what he was saying when he, when he gets up in the old state capitol and, and gives the house divided speech. The nation's going to become all slave or all free. He really meant it. And, and there was good reason to think he was right.
9: We're speaking with Dr. Michael Burlingame, has just completed a new book, and it's called The Black Man's President. It's a perspective of Lincoln's relationship with other people based not on his writings so much but on his relationship to African-Americans. He had a very good friend who was a barber here in town, William Florville. His area where, where his home is, the National Park now, it was very integrated. What, right, it was. What would it look like to us now?
3: One of the striking features of the neighborhood that existed at the time that Lincoln was living there, he would have, walking back and forth to his law office over near the Old State Capitol, he would pass by Black people, German people, Irish people, and there would be neighbors. And he may not have intimate relations with him, but he'd doff his hat say hi, we'd stop and chat. This kind of atmosphere was one that was conducive to helping him achieve a sense of, of racial egalitarianism. That is part of his makeup. He had a very sensitive conscience. This is one of the things that not fully appreciated in Lincoln. When he was growing up as a boy in Indiana, he would chastise his playmates for their cruelty to animals, which was sort of standard brand frontier boy. Frontier boy did throw snakes into the fire and set hot coals on the backs of turtles and that sort of thing. Offended by this kind of cruelty to animals would certainly have felt that way about cruelty and discrimination and second-class citizenship to black people, sort of instinctively. The notion that black people could be first-class citizenship was then reinforced by his experience with the people like uh, Billy the Barber and his neighbors and William K. Donagan, and with Jameson Jenkins and and, uh, and servants who worked in the home, William Brown and, and the others. And it's striking that all these people that Lincoln interacted with when they were interviewed later after Lincoln's assassination by newspaper correspondents constantly talked about how friendly he was and how respectful he was and how cordial he was. Frederick Douglass famously said that he's the only white man who... Uh, with whom I could speak, who never made me self-conscious of my race. He brings that with him from Springfield. It's not something he develops in Washington just from the basis of having interacted with Sojourner Truth and and other more eminent, highly educated people like Alexander who's who was a a professor of of philosophy in in Liberia and a graduate of of Queen's College, England, people like that, that he brought with him that instinctive notion that Black people are perfectly capable of becoming the kinds of first-place citizenships that any any country would relish having.
9: How familiar was the population with African-American leadership? Were they prominent? What was Lincoln's interaction? add to their
3: status there were some who in springfield who were prominent william forville for example was mentioned in one of the springfield papers in 1849 as, and this is a somewhat strange accolade, but he was <laughs> hailed as the most polite man in, in Springfield. Florville was, was not just cutting hair. like he, he, he established a dry cleaning business. He was quite well-to-do. He invested in property. And Lincoln was his lawyer, by the way. He owned property in Bloomington. Lincoln secured the title. He paid the taxes. He was pretty well-known. Samuel Ball was his principal competitor as a barber in town. And he was famous for having gone to Liberia. The Baptist sent him there to check out Liberia as a potential place for, for Black people who were fearful that they would never become first-class citizens in the U.S. And, and that this might be an appropriate place for them to resettle if they wanted to be given fair treatment. He was pretty well-known.
9: You mentioned Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass and, and the national African-American leadership at the time. Were they well-known to the population? Oh,
3: yes. Oh, yeah. Frederick Douglass was. Frederick Douglass was very prominent. And so General Truth was, too, they would have been two of the most, one of the first Black people to come to the White House to consult with Lincoln in 1862 was, was Bishop Daniel Payne, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who was very well-known, probably the most famous Black man in the country, perhaps next to, to Frederick Douglass. Martin Delaney, with whom Lincoln, Lincoln appoints him as the, the first line officer, that is, combat officer in the Union Army, a major, which which was pretty high up in the military hierarchy. He was thought of as the father of Black nationalism. There were Blacks, and and Lincoln was very positive, not just in being courteous, not just being kind, although that was part of it, but but when when they would come and ask for something, Lincoln would say, okay, Uh, for example, two gentlemen from New Orleans come in the March of 64, and they bring with them a petition signed by a thousand men from New Orleans who say, look, we're Black, we're taxpayers, we're educated, we're literate, and we would like to have the right to vote. And Lincoln tells them, he's very courteous to them, and, and he says, I'm very sympathetic, but under our Constitution, as it now stands, states make up the rules for eligibility for voting. So I recommend that you go and try to influence the Constitutional Convention, which is about to be held. They have a very, very positive response to Lincoln. And then Lincoln writes a letter shortly thereafter to the governor of, of Louisiana saying you're about to hold a Constitutional Convention. I suggest that you get incorporated into that new document voting rights for Black people, at least those who served in the military, and who, those who are very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. And I'm pretty sure that he was moved to do that by his sense of fair play, but also by by this this very these two very, very articulate gentlemen, plus this, this petition, where, where these gentlemen also say, look, some of us served uh, in Andrew Jackson's army back in 1815 and helped repel the British, <laughs> or our fathers did. Lincoln then moves by recommending to the governor of Louisiana. And then this modest, that is to say, limited amount of black suffrage, it was a, a start. He makes the same recommendation publicly a little over a year later, in April of 1865, two days after Robert E. Lee surrenders. And the war is virtually over. A huge crowd comes to the White House to have a kind of victory celebration, and they expect Lincoln to give them a kind of victory lap speech. We won, they lost, let's hear it for the Army and the Navy. Lincoln instead, to this huge crowd, gives a very sober analysis of reconstruction. What are we going to do with the 11 states that form the Confederacy? How, how can they be politically rehabilitated? And now he says, Louisiana's made a good step. Now, some people think that they should have allowed blind people to vote, and I personally think so too. I think that at least the veterans of the military and the very intelligent should be allowed to vote. Frederick Douglass was in the audience that day. It's a huge crowd. Later, he said, I and my abolitionist friends were very disappointed because of the limited scope of that recommendation. That is only the military veterans and the, the very intelligent. But we should have realized that that was an extremely significant speech because Lincoln learned his statesmanship in the school of rail splitting. And to split a rail, you take a wedge and you insert the thin edge of the wedge into the log. Having done that, then you take a big hammer, a mall, and you drive home the thick edge of the wedge. And what we should have known was that that very day, April 11th, 1865, Lincoln was inserting the thin edge of the wedge. And having done that, you could count on him to drive home the thick edge of the wedge, which is just what happened with slavery. He'd started off very modest anti-slavery proposals and then wound up supporting the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery throughout the country, not just in the Confederacy. There was a young man in that audience who did appreciate what that speech meant and how significant it was. And that was John Wilkes booth. And he turned to his companions and he said, that means N-word citizenship. By God, I'm going to run him through. That's the last speech he's ever going to give. He murdered Lincoln three days later, not because of the Emancipation Proclamation, and not just because the Emancipation Proclamation abolishes slavery in the Confederacy, and then the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery throughout the country. Lincoln gets murdered for calling for, for Black voting rights, and therefore I think should be regarded as much a martyr to black civil rights as Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and all those people who were murdered back in the 1960s as they championed the civil rights revolution of that
0: era. Historian Michael Burlingame, his book called The Black Man's President, examines Lincoln's treatment of blacks and their views of him at the time. Burlingame is a professor of history and chair of Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois Springfield, and he spoke with Randy Eccles. Coming up, some tips to avoid Valentine's Day scams on Statewide. We'll be back with more in a moment. I'm Sean Crawford, and this is Statewide. Coming up, we'll profile a Southern Illinois congressional primary race. But first, as we approach Valentine's Day, the Better Business Bureau is out with a scam alert involving romance, WSIU's Brad Palmer talked with the Bureau's regional director, the Waters, about how if someone offers you money for nothing, there's probably a catch.
8: So this is a new twist on a romance scam, and how it initially starts is you get a message through a dating or a social media app from someone offering to be your sugar mama or sugar daddy, in exchange for your affection. And they'll pay you a weekly allowance. And that can range from hundreds to sometimes thousands of dollars. And, you know, this offer initially sounds too good to be true. But then as you form a relationship with this person, your benefactor seems legitimate.
10: Specifically, how do they do this? I guess it involves maybe transferring your money and then they want access to your accounts, that sort of thing. How does this work?
8: Yeah, so there's a couple of ways we've seen. Um, one way is the scammer sends you a check and, or pretends to transfer money into your bank account or a peer-to-peer payment service like Cash App or PayPal or Apple Pay, and they tell you to keep most of the money as your weekly allowance after you do some sort of small favor for them. And these favors range from paying an outstanding bill to helping a needy friend or purchasing a gift card, maybe even donating to a charity that ends up being fake. And then we also have had victims even report scammers or asking them to pay back for transaction fees and things of that nature with Bitcoin. So the whole premise is you go and you pay these small favors And then those checks or that transfer for your allowance, it doesn't really exist. And they end up canceling that, and you spend your own money doing these small favors. And generally, it's some sort of circle where the scammer then gets the money back.
10: Mm. And they also sometimes just blatantly ask for your account information to to either deposit money or make it sound like they're depositing money into your account?
8: Yes. And, And, you know, it seems like this is something that you would catch, but... In these romance scams, you have to remember that these people are playing on heartstrings and, you know, this can go on for weeks before they start asking for this information and you really trust this person. So, um, one victim shared that he made the deposit and his account got restricted and the bank needed verification and he refused to give it unless um, he gave his social security number and ID. So, you know, if anyone asks for your social security number, that should definitely be a red flag as well.
2: Yeah.
10: Are are more men or women susceptible to this? Uh, does it matter gender-wise, or are both kind of susceptible to falling to this scam?
8: We've seen both, honestly, and especially, you know, with— um, they're raising all of these different dating apps available, and there's Facebook dating, all different sorts of online dating options. And so scammers are really playing into all of these different avenues to play into your heartstrings.
10: All right. So to protect yourself from this scam, especially involving checks and your personal accounts, how do you know what your rights and responsibilities are there when it comes to, to protecting your, your personal data?
8: Really important, and most people don't realize this, but you need to know your rights and responsibilities when it comes to using checks. Uh, Banks will actually make the funds from a check available before the money is actually transferred into your account. So if you spend the money and the check is fake, the bank has the right to recover the funds from you. So, you know, if that sugar mama, sugar daddy transfers you money and then cancels it, that really falls on you in the long run. So you really need to take some time before you spend that money make sure that check clears.
10: And uh, researching your date, uh, how do you go about doing that to, I guess, initially find out if this person is for real or, or their intentions are legitimate?
8: This is a really great tip. So you can actually do a reverse image lookup using a website like Google Images. And you can go through these dating profiles and see if those photos were stolen from somewhere else. Um, And you can also search online for just a profile name or email or phone number to see what pops up. So just do a little bit of research on that person before you share any kind of personal information.
10: And I like this one too, where you can maybe try and catch the scammer in a a lie or or misinformation, that sort of thing. How do you go about trying to find out a little bit more about them?
8: So especially um, if they have a sense of urgency to get you to do these small favors, ask really specific questions about details, maybe given in their dating profile or things you've talked about. Scammers will generally stumble over remembering those minute details, and that'll be a red flag that maybe their story isn't adding up.
0: Sydney Waters is a regional director with the Better Business Bureau. She spoke with Brad Palmer about romance scams ahead of Valentine's Day. Two people died at the hands of police in Rantoul last year. Officials say these were the city's first-ever fatal police shootings. Now local activists are concerned about the department's lack of action to prevent future officer-involved shootings. Vera Anderson reports for Illinois Public Media and the Invisible Institute. A note to listeners, this story contains descriptions of violence.
2: In February of last year, -year 21-year-old Rantoul resident Azan Lee was stopped by a group of officers. Lee was suspected of stealing a car. Body cam footage shows the officers approached Lee as he was walking down the street. They began to search him. Rantoul police officer Jose Aceves told Lee to pull out the contents of his pockets, which included loose change and a lighter. Then, Aceves reached into the pocket of Lee's hoodie and found a gun. Lee started to run. Officer Aceves followed and kept his hands on Lee. Get
1: on the ground now! Get on the ground, you're gonna get shot! Get on the ground!
2: In the struggle, Officer Aceves shot Lee with Lee's own gun. As Lee continued to run, Aceves fired three more shots from his weapon. None of them hit Lee. Lee was transported to the hospital where he died. Whenever an officer uses force, the Rantoul Police Department's Use of Force Review Board evaluates whether the officers followed internal policies. In this case, the board, made up entirely of Rantoul police staff, concluded Officer Aceves did nothing wrong. The board recommended Aceves receive additional firearm training, but he resigned just one month after the shooting. And just a few months later, he was hired by the Champaign County Sheriff's Department. A department memo shows Rantoul police supervisors told the department a SEVAS might need close supervision. In June, another Rantoul police officer killed a person, this time during a traffic stop. 18-year-old Jordan Richardson was shot as he ran away with a weapon in hand. In this case, the Use of Force Review Board found the officer, Jerry King, also did not violate the department's policies. The board did not recommend individual follow-up training for him. And just two days later, the department sent him to a shooting range. Officials say that's because he needed a new weapon since his last one was seized by the Illinois State Police for its investigation. In both shootings, the board recommended that all Rantul police staff undergo hands-on training in how to respond to high-stress situations. But documents we obtained through open records requests show the department hasn't implemented any of those recommended trainings.
10: They're not binding, they are recommendations.
2: That's Rantoul Deputy Chief Justin Baus.
10: But they are something that we look at and obviously start to chart a course towards uh, fulfilling each of those recommendations.
2: Baus says many of the department's trainings haven't resumed since they were halted by the pandemic, and they always have to consider how much funding they have. Since the fatal shootings, local activists have been pressuring the department to do more.
3: What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? Now! If we don't!
2: Urbana resident and activist Derek Briles says he doesn't trust the police's internal investigation.
10: You're never going to get an honest review when cops are reviewing cops.
2: Bryle's helped deliver a petition with over 700 signatures from Champaign County residents, pushing for independent, third-party investigations into the fatal shootings. Rantual police officials say there's no need for that, which is disappointing to Briles.
10: They have shown absolutely zero willingness to improve, to admit that things could have been handled differently, to really engage with the public in any way or in any meaningful action, really, at all following either shooting.
2: Most police department policies allow officers to justify their use of force if they feel their lives are in danger, says Michael Sierra Arevalo. He's a national expert on the use of force in policing and a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Rantoul's policy is no different.
9: My work would suggest that what you're looking at here is actually just the logical conclusion, the logical outcome of a policing system that is designed to protect the lives of officers over that of citizens.
2: And even when departments implement training, he says there's no real evidence that they help reduce force.
9: I think the simple fact is you're not going to train your way out of a lot of these problems.
2: The best thing police departments can do, he says, is closely examine everything that happened leading up to a fatal shooting, not just determine whether the officer followed protocol. Rantoul Deputy Chief Baus says the board does consider all these things. Sierra Arevalo also says department should do psychological evaluations for officers and offer mental health services after high-stress situations. Deputy Chief Baus would not confirm whether the department did any of these things. Police officials did say in an earlier interview they want to get more officers into the recommended trainings this spring. I'm Ferry Anderson, reporting
0: that story produced in partnership with the Champaign Urbana Civic Police Data Project of the nonprofit newsroom, Invisible Institute. Well, it is election season, and in far southern Illinois, a conservative congressman like incumbent Mike Bost would ordinarily be a shoe in for re election. But he faces a serious challenge in the upcoming March 19th primary from a fellow Republican who says Bost's voting record isn't good enough even though Bost was in line with former President Donald Trump 94% of the time. Alex Degman reports.
6: In a campaign ad filmed on a dreary, foggy January 1st, Darren Bailey walks out the front door of his home carrying an AR-15 rifle.
0: A lot of people have been asking me if I'm going to comply with JB's illegal gun registry.
6: The point of the ad is for Bailey to protest Illinois' new assault weapons ban, which had just gone into effect that day.
0: Well, friends... Here's your answer.
6: Bailey takes aim and shoots at a piece of paper tacked to a tree that said, I will not comply. Bailey's challenging incumbent Mike Bost for his seat in Congress. Normally, established political parties like to avoid divisive primaries like this. So I went to Bailey's family farm to get a sense of why he's doing this. Good to see you. So Bailey says go? he's running because he's unhappy with the job that Bost has done. I see failure, and then I begin to go around and just ask people, well, who is this Mike Bost? What do you, what's he done? And I never get an answer for that. Bailey's known as a political firebrand. He made a name for himself in Springfield as a state representative and state senator, and won the Republican nomination for Illinois governor in what was an expensive and competitive primary. He even got Donald Trump's endorsement in that race, which may have helped him win the primary, but not in November. Bailey lost badly to Democrat J.B. Pritzker, which led here, Bailey running for a seat in Congress that's already held by a reliable conservative. Bailey says Bost is out of step with the party, though, saying Bost supports background checks and regulating bump stocks. Plus, Bailey says Bost has been ineffective. Might have thrown some papers up in the air 10 years ago or maybe last year. They don't know. Bailey's referring to Bost's viral moment. Feel like somebody trying to be released from
9: Egypt. Let my people go.
6: My God, they sent me You can't hear it, but Bost throws a stack of paper in the air and tries to punch it out of exasperation. It was a rare moment of theatrics for Bost back when he was a lawmaker in Springfield, and he lost his temper with Democrats who controlled the legislative process. Now that he's in Washington, Bost says frustrations still boil over, but he's not being an obstructionist.
0: One thing's for sure,
3: when you express a strong opinion. You've got to be willing to work to make the changes, not just to say, I've got a strong opinion.
6: Bost entered Congress in 2015. He says his main issues in Washington are ag, infrastructure and veterans, and he's introduced 85 bills, five of which have become law. He calls himself a governing conservative.
0: Our real issue is to try to gain ground where we can gain ground and actually govern from the small majority
3: that we have.
6: And while he doesn't use Bailey's name, Bost does take shots at his primary challenger.
3: Unfortunately, we have people that are more interested in being on social media to get likes on social media and also who work to get on a 24-hour news network.
6: In this deep red district, whoever wins the March 19th Republican primary is likely to win the November general election. But Bost is still fighting for political survival against his own party, with Trump potentially leading the ticket this year. So, he's lined up endorsements from Congressman Jim Jordan and Ronnie Jackson, Donald Trump's former physician, along with groups of farmers, police officers, firefighters, and veterans. Bost has heavily outraised Bailey so far, 6 to 1, with Bost raising a little more than $1.8 million last year compared to Bailey's 311000 Though Bailey has gotten a couple of major endorsements of his own from the far right side of the party, Congresswoman Mary Miller of Illinois and Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, One person who has not made an endorsement in this primary race, at least not yet, is Donald Trump. I'm Alex Degman.
0: We're out of time for Statewide. Be sure to join us again next week. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts, also through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.